Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Just the savings to the public health system, their version of the NHS. They reckon we're not even thinking about better soils, more biodiversity, happier farmers and cleaner waterways. Because even the cleaner waterways will save the government a couple of billion because it costs a lot, right, to clean up your waterways and the kind of ensuing fallout from polluted rivers. So just across the National Health Service, for every euro they spent in setting this project up, they're saving, so one-off cost of every euro, they're saving annually 35 euros. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. It was an absolute pleasure to host Thomasina Myers on the podcast today. Entrepreneur, cook, TV personality, activist, writer, and so much more. There isn't, there isn't much that this person cannot do. And like many of us, she learned how to cook at her mother's side. And after attempting to forge a career in advertising, journalism, digital consultancy, she followed her heart and she went to cookery school. Fast forward a few years after traveling the world, she went on to win MasterChef and then create Oaxaca, inspired by the markets of Mexico during her trips. Tommy also deeply cares about where our food comes from, and it really comes through in our chat today, how it's grown, how it supports the soil, biodiversity, and the planet, and also believes that everyone should have access to good ingredients. I learned so much more about Tommy and we chat about the importance of soil today, how Chefs in Schools, the charity that she's a patron of, is changing what our children eat. How Groovamada, or one half of Groovamada, sold his record rights to start an organic farm, something I'm definitely going to look into because I love Groovamada. Um, why the ancient Mayan civilization disappeared as well, or potentially disappeared. Remember, you can check out her incredible book, Meat Free Mexican. I can personally vouch for the recipes. They are wonderful, and they have some glorious dishes, and her regular column is in The Guardian as well. All the links to our discussion topics can be found on the doctorskitchen.com forward slash podcasts. And remember, a no-cost way of supporting the of uh, supporting the podcast is to watch on YouTube and subscribe while you're there as well. Check out my newsletter, Eat, Listen, Read. Every single week, I send you a recipe to cook and some mindfully curated media to help you have a healthy, happier week. And if you want to supercharge your health and take it to the next level, check out the doctor's kitchen app it's out in the app store we have hundreds of recipes you can filter according to health goals every recipe has step-by-step images to make it super simple to eat well every day and uh, you can check it out with a 14-day free trial in the app store as well i really do hope you enjoy this conversation Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping 
and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tommy, thank you so much for making the time for jumping on the podcast. I'm so stoked to meet you at Melissa's dinner party to celebrate her book. Um, and when you told me that you were listening to the pod, I felt all, I had butterflies. So thank you so much. I really, really do appreciate your time. Oh, I felt like I totally like grabbed you, slightly fangirling. I was like, oh my God, it's Rupi in the room. Because <laughs> I felt like I started listening to you in lockdown and there's so much wisdom in your podcast. And I was so attracted to how you seem to get these brilliant brains from all sorts of disciplines and just extract such amazing nuggets from them. But also, I find totally infectious, your just willingness and wanting to just learn from everyone and deep dive into all these things. It's really, it's, it's so infectious. It's wonderful. Thank you. That's that, that's so lovely of you. And we, we, you know, we met up afterwards and we had coffee. And we we're just like bouncing around ideas and stuff. And, um, you know, I, I, will, I already knew that you were somewhat of an activist, uh, a, a, like a, a real deep thinker about different topics that expand beyond our, our plate. But uh, I really got a sense for just how many things you're, you're involved in. But to, to anchor the listener, I would love to Talk a bit about how you got into food, your your earliest sort of like memories of food. Because I, I gather you learned a lot from your mother, is, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I was, my brother and sister, I felt when I was young, I felt this kind of torture that they were the creative ones. And in the playroom, they were like always creating these stories, these fantasies. And I'd just be always a bit bored hanging around at the edge thinking, uh. but then I found I loved my mother and I kind of always wanted to be quite close to her. And then I found this amazing area in the kitchen that you could just play and create and do all this stuff. And and from quite early on, I just remember being sandwiched next to the kind of stool. I'm sitting on a stool now around my table. We'd sit at the counter and she explained to me why she was slow cooking the onions, um, why she was cooking out the flour when she was making the bechamel to get the most flavor out and to stop it tasting raw just those really simple building blocks. But also because my father was really bad at making money, we always bought very kind of simple ingredients, humble ingredients, I say, but she was really good at getting the most amount of flavor. So we ate really well. And, and we, you know, food was a massive thing growing up on Saturdays, we'd have sandwich making competitions, even like BLTs were a bit of a ritual on the Saturday. But, you know, when we went to say my granny in Wales, we'd buy like mass buy the streaky bacon because the butcher like slice it wafer, wafer thin. So that when you put it in the frying pan, it was all crisp and sizzling and delicious. And then my mother would like 
skin the tomatoes, dress them in salt, brown sugar, pepper, bit of vinegar, and they'd be on the table, iceberg lettuce in those days. And then we'd all make our own BLTs the way we kind of wanted them. And they were just, I mean, that's way the food was. You know, my father, a special treat. We never ate in restaurants. When I did MasterChef later, and there's this Michelin star challenge where you have to make a plate of food that looks like a Michelin plate of food. I was completely like out of sea. I was like, oh, but I've never eaten in a Michelin star restaurant. That's not what we did when I was growing up. So, um, cause like occasionally for birthday, dad would like, we go out very occasionally and he'd just like, look at all the prices on the menu. He's a nightmare. And then it, everyone would be tense and he'd be like, we could cook this so much better at home. <laughs> so then after that, basically that's what he did. He had a motorbike and he'd go off to Selfridges Food Hall if there was a real special occasion and buy a really nice, you know, bit of steak or a really nice bit of fish. And then he would cook it. And that's how we celebrated, um, mostly at home, just around a kitchen table. That's epic. Yeah. I, that frugality, I think, is sort of imbued into me as well. And, and it, it's funny you, you mentioned that, uh, that sort of pit, the, the picture you painted of you sat around the kitchen table on a stool and stuff. That's exactly how I learned how to cook for my mum and just like watching her with the careful use of spices, using one of those real typical sort of uh, bowls with a lid on uh, of all the different spices and small tallies. And, uh, and, you know, it's like, oh, this is when you put in the mustard seeds. This is when you put in the curry leaves. You want to flavor the oil and all that kind of stuff. So it, it, it's weird how you like absorb with these different things. And when you go to teach other people about how to cook, you kind of assume that people have that knowledge. And actually, just through like me doing social media, I've realized actually how how little sort of education there is in this and how little sort of um, second, uh, you know, sixth sense around around cooking that there is just just generally. I do want to talk about chefs in schools in a bit, but instead of like uh, jumping around, one thing I love about your career is that you tried a whole bunch of things prior to, to going into cookery. What led you to go down those sort of uh, quote unquote more traditional paths uh, before you went into cookery? Yeah, well, I, I went to a really academic like day school. I feel like, I don't know whether I made this up or not, but I feel like part of our school motto at one stage was get out of the kitchen because it was a real feminist, you know, our girls can do anything. We can like, we can churn out, you know, bankers, lawyers, human rights lawyers, politicians. So yeah, it was St. Paul's in London and food was seen. I'm really interested in this and I feel it pervades politics that food is seen as something other that's not related to how you perform mentally, how you feet, how you um, fare physically in life. Food is seen as almost a luxury, an extravagance, um, something that's set up in a little box kind of over in a corner. Um, and definitely the idea is that I could cook for a career was out of the question. Um, in fact, there was a girl from school called um, Allegra McEverdy who was a real bad girl when I was at school. She's like the naughty one. And she did go off and become a chef. But it was like, she was like, you know, she was, a, you know, she was the kind of bad girl of the school. Uh, she won't mind me saying this. She's really cool. So it didn't really seem like a possibility. And, and I, I've gone back now and I talk at that school and I'm always saying how fundamental, because what you're saying just then about our background knowledge when we were growing up, what that gives us, you and me, is the skill to coming home late at night, opening the kitchen, uh, the fridge doors. And even if you've got apparently nothing in the fridge, you can still make something 
really delicious out of almost nothing that costs very little because you just know that if you've got a bit of pasta or, you know, a broccoli or I was reading, actually, there's an amazing book by Tamal Adler, who is a wonderful food writer who trained at Chez Panisse. Um, and her new book is about this. It's about, you know, boiling, boiling a vegetable, how, you know, you can put a, a head of broccoli or a head of cauliflower and boil it in water and then use that water to boil your pasta. And then you might use that water again to cook some beans later on for eating on later in the week. And she always talks about, you know, cook more vegetables than you need, because then tomorrow, the next day, you're set up already for another meal. And I think that's what the skills you're given by your mother when you learn that kind of intuitive cooking is you just know, I had like 10 people around last night for dinner, but I had no time to cook because I was out all day, but I knew I had some chicken liver pate in the freezer because I always make it because I always save the chicken livers from the chicken because I buy them at the market. Um, and I knew I had some spice nuts in my larder. I always have them because they're delicious and they're healthy, good snacks for the kids on the go. I had some homemade strawberry ice cream in the freezer. I had some homemade chocolate pump street, chocolate and my brownies left over from a kid's fair. So I knew I could put those in the oven and get them more gooey. Uh, I had some really killer Neil's Yard creme fraiche that lasts forever. So that was great. Pick that out. And then on Monday, I made a Thai green curry paste from lots of stuff that I bought from this amazing Thai grocery. Very cheap. Um, I bought some amazing Brussels sprout stems from the market. And like, Oh, that's so fun. And then the girls helped me prep them. We did that on Monday. Um, on Tuesday, I think on Monday I did that. On Tuesday, I prepped the curry paste, put it in the freezer so it stay fresh. And then on in the morning, I, I prepped the pumpkin that I'd also bought at the market. Amazing crown print squash, delicious. Shoved it in the oven and said to my childminder, do you think you can take it out, um, you know, in 35 minutes? So basically, dinner was kind of prepped. And I think that's the joy of, of knowing how to cook is it means you can eat delicious food all the time without spending a fortune. Um, and for me, and we can jump around, but that's why Chefs and Schools is, for me is such an inspiring charity because we are teaching generations of kids how to put food at the center of your life to give you pleasure, you know, flavor, pleasure, but also Health, mental health, physical health, affordability, you know, it's all there in one thing. How did we put food on the outside when food, if we don't eat, we die? It's like a survival thing. And, and nutrition, like nourishing food, you know, the heart of nourishment is that the food gives you something. You're not eating it for fun. I mean, you are hopefully eating it for fun because it should always be delicious. But it's supposed to actually nourish your body and mind. That's the whole point of it, right? It's to keep you alive. And we kind of lost that somehow, that, that idea. And so what people are eating now, they call it food. I would, I would argue that ultra-processed food, we should ban them from being able to label it as food because it's not food because it's actually making people sick and it's not nourishing them. Surely when we say food, that idea of nourishment should be woven up in the word. Anyway, there you are. I'm quite passionate about the subject. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. We're going to be jumping around a lot. I know we are. So that's cool. Um, I, uh, I, I feel like it's my unfair advantage, actually. Um, it's my sort of privilege that I do have those skills that I can just open up the fridge or the store cupboard and I can just see, you know, meals. I can see recipes. It's almost like I, I just paint them in, in my brain and then I just sort of allow 
the 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 recipe to sort of come together and they're like they're non-recipe recipes there's this famous book i think by um the new york times of these uh recipes and you can't cook them unless you're an intuitive cook because they don't put any measurements in the in the book there's just literally a list of ingredients which i i find amazing but for like a novice cook that's like a nightmare and i chat to a lot of my my friends and and, and colleagues in medicine and they struggle and that, that that's where you come to rely on ultra processed foods, takeaway foods, deliveries, all that kind of stuff, because you can't see how you can create a delicious bean stew using some frozen items in your in, in your freezer and the can of beans that you got on your in your larder. Like you just can't see that. And what you described there about how you're cooking for ten people, m- people hearing that would be like, "How on earth do you do all these different things?" But for you, it's just it's not. It's just like, "Oh, I'll just put that there and put that there," and and, and you know, I, I've got a full meal for everyone. For for most people to cook for ten people would take the entire day, let alone like looking after your kids in the in the midst of all that. So. It's it, it it is pretty incredible, and I think what you're doing with chefs in school. Why don't why don't you introduce chefs in schools? Actually, what is what is the mission, the ethos, and what what are you hoping to uh, create uh, out of that that organisation? Yeah, so so my kids' school had this amazing uh, bit of land, fairly derelict. So I got um, excited about saving this bit of land. I got a bit obsessive about the government selling off playgrounds. It was before my kids were at the school, actually. I kept passing it by. It's kind of on my road. And I kept thinking, they've got to, like, they've got to do something with this garden before someone decides it's a good idea to like, sell it off and make some money. So I got quite obsessive about this. And with a girl called Laura Harper Hinton, who runs a group of restaurants called Caravan, who's also a local, we started doing these um, festivals in the school to raise money to help build the playground and start growing food in it. We had a dome and growing food and all that stuff. So we had these great festivals. We raised lots of money. But the school cooks, the school was lucky enough to have a kitchen. But the school cooks didn't know what to do with these seasonal vegetables. They didn't know how to incorporate in the food. Basically, they didn't have the skills. And at, almost at the same time, a guy called Henry Dimbleby, who wrote the food strategy, um, was happen- having similar experiences in his local primary school. His, you know, grew up with really good cooking. His mother was a food writer. And the food in his primary school was rubbish. And so he put a tweet out saying, can anyone uh, let me know? I need a school cook. And this amazing girl called Nicole Pisani, who's the co-founder of Chefs and Schools. So she was the head chef at Nopi, one of Ottolenghi's kind of stellar restaurants in London. And she was kind of burnt out. And she saw this tweet or someone sent her it. And she became the school cook at Henry Dimbleby's kids' school and started really transforming the school food. I mean, she is hilarious. The story she will tell you about particularly mushrooms. Mushrooms is something that's so hard for any kid to love. She will tell you so many disaster stories about trying to put mushrooms and hiding them to food. But, but you know, she, has, she is brilliant. And um, she and the MD now of Chefs and Schools is another amazing girl uh, are really transforming school food. And, and basically, we all got around the table together because I, meanwhile, have been talking to a head of an autistic school in Shepherd's Bush who had transformed the school food. Food and eating for autistic children is really problematic. And she won um, an award, an Observer Food Monthly Award, when I was judging one year. And I remember talking to her going, how how did you do it? And she said, for me, that all the learning was, if you put a trained chef in, that is the transformative piece. Because a chef is trained to make food look beautiful, 
for texture, for color. That's just their training. That's their innate. That's what they do. And they want to please people. They love people enjoying their food. That's, you know, that's any chef, their main motivation. When you look back in the journey of the childhood, me and my childhood, quite a problematic upbringing, quite a little stress and noise. When I fed people, I made them happy. That was basically my core motivation was to please people and get that kind of positive feedback. And I reckon you can talk to 99% of chefs and that was their fundamental, something in their childhood and that feeling of giving pleasure to people. So anyway, this guy transformed the food. And so Nicole and um, uh, Henry and I and, and a girl called Joe Weinberg sat around a table at Oaxaca actually and we were like, I think we should do this. And also what was really appealing about it is the business model because, you know, I am an entrepreneur. Oaxaca is my group of restaurants and I'm all for efficiency. So one trained chef in a school of 600, 700, 800 kids can transform the eating and the learning of that entire school. And that is basically the business model. And what we've discovered over four years, we've been in 80 schools, but we're going to be in 1300 schools in the next four years because our business model is completely like we've got it. We've got it now. We've got it razor tight. It's working. We're in we start off in London. We've got a chapter in Yorkshire, no, in Sheffield, sorry. We've got a chapter just opening in the southwest, uh, Cornwall, Somerset. We're talking um, to, to Scotland at the moment. It's so inspiring. But, but essentially, we've, what we discovered was because these chefs are so well trained, that even though we'd stopped feeding the kids this cheap beige food that basically had no nutrition, no fiber, and as some of the kids said, you know, we used to fall asleep straight after lunch because they were so bogged down these kind of simple carbs high sugar spikes and then those sugar crashes straight after lunch because they had no fiber no kind of you know that rainbow plate of vegetating on your so we were feeding the kids we do feed the kids vegetarian twice a week so we're bringing generations of kids up to love our diversity of vegetables which is great for the planet great for their microbiome and gut health um but also we're making bread fresh from scratch we're having the joy of cooking and we're doing this, well, before Ukraine and that crazy, you know, this crazy inflation of food costs, we were doing this at a saving of 50 pence per pupil per day. So we were saving that every day per pupil because the chefs just knew how to work ingredients. They just knew how to get the best of them. They knew how to make a killer dal, which, you know, with the homemade bread, it's actually a meal, right? It's got some lovely herbs on. They just knew how to cook. And they knew how to organize a kitchen. So even with the existing team of cooks. And you know what's so exciting about this? I was doing a fundraiser in my kitchen just here the other day. And one of the chefs from Chefs and Schools was this pretty handsome 30-year-old who was DJing at Freeze Art Fair that evening. He trained at St. John's, which got Michelin star. He was, this was a cool kid living in Camberwell, like really cool guy. And he has been a Chefs and Schools chef for three years. And he's he's there because... He is the hero of the school. He's no longer, these school cooks no longer go through the back door where no one knows their name and they're the kind of unseen workforce. These guys are the heroes to the kids because they're making delicious, nutritious food, which kids love. This idea that you can just palm off fried stuff to kids because kids don't love vegetables. It's such a kind of, it's, it's such propaganda. It's such a propaganda to have, you know, the least, the least and cheapest and easier option for kids. But I think we've got to like stop that rhetoric and 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 bust that myth that kids don't like eating veg because if you feed them delicious food they will eat it. 
if you're going to boil the crap out of something and not season it, then maybe they won't like it. But if you're going to cook it beautifully and season it and put lots of herbs on, they're going to love it. So it's really inspiring. And, and seeing how that whole food approach, the teachers start enjoying the food, they're sitting down with the kids, you know, the dinner ladies are having fun and everyone's engaged and they're learning about food. It's so inspirational. And then the chefs get these amazing hours. You know, famously, chefs have bad working hours. They get long school holidays. They go home at four. Um, so it's great. It's really fun. That's epic. Can, can, can we dive into, because I'm interested in, in the business model of this, and I think there's a nice sort of parallel between what I hope to do within hospitals as well. So with the with the chefs, so is it one uh, senior lead chef that you have in the school? So it's a head chef. It's so we model chef. it just like a restaurant kitchen. Okay. So there's a head chef. He's got a couple of sous chefs under him. And the structure is exactly like a restaurant kitchen. And that really works. And then just like a restaurant kitchen, you start training up your team. So the guy who's on the pot wash, which traditionally in the kitchen is, you know, somebody who doesn't speak English, who's just come over from England, from all sorts of backgrounds. And you start with, you respect them from the start because they're doing the hardest job, which is, the washing up you know that's literally the hardest job the, the pot washer in any restaurants like the here of the kitchen and then you start training them and skilling them up and that's how any restaurant kitchen is you start skilling your workforce so they can start you know moving up the ladder and taking on more responsibility so that's exactly how it works okay and so the head chef would would you be paying them a similar wage to them working in any other restaurant in in different parts of the country whether it be york or central london or bristol is it is it like tiered according to a certain system or so it's, it has all again been completely skewed in the last 12 months by um by covid shortage staff shortages um because right now the inflation rate of chefs in restaurant kitchens is crazy because basically there are not enough there are not enough people working in kitchens to support the amount of restaurants that open people can't get into restaurants on mondays tuesdays sundays anymore because people just don't have enough staff if you'd let refugees actually work for a living, earn money and pay taxes, you might solve that problem. But that's another story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and with, with a, is it a similar situation to other public sector areas where you are allocated a certain amount per uh, pupil or user of said service? Yes. And you have that pot of money and then you choose from again um regulated suppliers so you have to choose certain suppliers to, uh, of, of produce so what we have done um which i think is really interesting is because um nicole came from nopi which is a really well respected very upmarket you know shishi restaurant in london um so she brought those suppliers that she used at nopi to the table because she didn't see why she'd start using you know, chicken nuggets, frozen chicken nuggets to feed the kids when she could bread her own chicken and she knew that she could get the chicken from a good farm. So the business model was set up with a set of suppliers who from the outset were really high quality. So I'd like to say climate friendly suppliers because these are suppliers who are already fairly smaller scale, some of them looking after their farms or their, their you know, their, what, however they're producing their food, trusted partners that, you know, when you work in a kind of, when you go and eat in a really good restaurant, normally the chef has got quite trusted partners and they're working people who already have a real respect for the ingredient, how it's grown, you know, 
the, the earth and the soil. So it's kind of all linked. And that's also what I love about the system is this is a kind of anti-system because you are starting to bring those producers who are looking after the environment in their small way into a kind of public procurement sector. So you're you're pulling people through to be able to give them more, more market share, in a sense, through these schools. And you're feeding kids food that's hopefully more nutritious because it's been grown in better soil. Maybe it's been sprayed less. I mean, definitely Wild Farms is a company I work for, which is an incredible company set up by Andy Cato, who's one half of Groove Armada. And he was Oh, I didn't DJing, know that. Um, wow. <laughs> Yeah, so, so cool. he was DJing in Ibiza and he was on the kind of the bus, kind of roadie bus. And he read this piece about um, the amount of chemicals being put onto the soil um, in a kind of conventional system. And the piece at the end, there was a kind of killer line at the end that said, if you don't like the system, don't be a part of it. And it kind of was that light bulb moment. And he basically sold his music rights to Groove Armada and bought a farm in southwest France. And, and moved his family out there and then ensued a kind of 15 year battle because the farm that he bought unbeknownst to him the soil was completely knackered so we don't really talk about soil enough like i think in the general in the general population now we talk we know about carbon but for me soil is a bigger threat to humankind as carbon because we're killing our soil the way we're growing vegetables and they're spraying nuking them really with herbicides pesticides fungicides killing all the microorganisms, killing the birds and the, no, killing, sorry, killing the worms and the bumblebees and the beetles, which support a whole web of life from, from kind of everything ground up. Um, this soil that he inherited, basically you couldn't grow food in. He wanted to be an organic farmer and he spent kind of eight years trying to farm organically. And he realized that even that, although he wasn't spraying, he was still battling with weeds and how to grow the food. And he started uh, really reading into it and discovering this regenerative farming, which essentially is growing food, but putting back into the soil. So you're kind of nourishing the soil as you're extracting food. Um, so you're not, we have this really extractive system, I think, in the capitalist West of always taking out from the planet and never thinking there's a, there's you know, never thinking there might be a finite limit to how much we take out and never thinking about what we can put back in. It's kind of mad. It's a bit like having children, right? You don't just, you know, thrash them, do your homework, do your homework, come out, come out. You know, at some stage, you've got to tuck them up into bed, you know, give them a bath, feed them something nice, and that they'll be better people the next day again. It's the same with farming, right? You've got to, like, nourish the soil as well, knowing that it's got to rest and be fed well as well. Otherwise, obviously, there's a limit to it. You know, your child's become a monster and, like, collapse. Um, so, so that's what we're doing worldwide. We're losing three football fields a minute of good soil and it's going to, to muck. And yet 95% of the food we grow is in, in soil. So we're, we're farming in a way that's killing the soil. And that's how the Mayans died out. You know, I, I always think back to this. I went to Palenque with this, you know, cause I do lots of Mexican food. I flew out to Palenque with my parents. I was doing a work trip and they came out, my youngest. And we were wandering around Palenque, these amazing ruins. And the chief archeologist had said, you know, we finally discovered why the Mayans, who were the most powerful people in the history of mankind, they'd like got, they ruled over this huge swathe of the Americas. And then they suddenly died out over about 50 years. And we've traced it back to soil erosion. They had a bit of a population boom. So they started farming too much. And meanwhile, they were making these killer pyramids that look great and 
made them feel strong and brave. And they just basically cut down all their trees and they had such bad soil erosion in the end with their high intense farming and the pyramid building that they lost the ability to grow food and collapsed as a, as a species. And you think, wow, that's what we're doing now. So looping back to chefs and schools, um, we buy wild farm flour because we know that flour is not spraying the, the soil with herbicides, pesticides, fungicides. It's regenerating the soil. And it's also producing this amazing stable of ancient varieties of wheats, which are, which have grown for nutritional purposes, deeper roots, um, better in droughts, um, better at withstanding floods, more resilient, but basically got more nutrition in them in the first place. So the actual flour they're making the bread with is better for the kids and yeah. better for the planet. Win-win. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's like a win-win. Um, we're definitely going to jump around because we're, we're going to talk about something that you're doing very recently uh, w- w- with with Nesta and, and a couple of other organizations. Just just to give the listeners some insight into how stretched the budget is per pupil, I wonder if you know some of the numbers that uh, the, the, the actual price per, per pupil that the government give for, for, for school lunches and stuff. I really wish I had Naomi, our MD, here with me because she knows all these numbers back to front. I'm just a yeah. kind of humble <laughs> trustee, um, but it is tiny. It is tiny, but but also you will know yeah. from your work in hospitals that it's tiny, yeah. and that it's also tiny in prisons. Um, yeah. But what I'm most interested in is that we scrimp and save on this, you know, upfront food cost. Um, even though we, you know, we save that food cost um, in our in our kind of business model, although we put it back into salaries, so we didn't actually make it wasn't cheaper. We put the food, the savings of food cost, back into the salaries and paid our people better. But um, but what I find fascinating is that diet related disease now, which incidentally is killing people more than alcohol or smoking, both of which are taxed. So you can talk about whether you should tax ultra processed food, which is doing the same job, um, which is you know, not doing good for people, but but it's costing the taxpayer. You know, it's costing you and me fifty-four billion pounds a year now, diet-related disease, and all the kind of ensuing fallout from the NHS on on people's health and sick days. You know, diet-related disease, as you know, causes all sorts of maladies. From um, well, yeah, well, you'll know heart disease and diabetes, all this stuff. So it's not as if this cheap food that for so long has been lobbied as you know we're doing such a good service we're feeding people on low incomes food that's affordable it's not that affordable if you think it's costing us 54 billion pounds a year and causing misery for people because we are we are the most obese country in europe now we have the worst diet and people will say don't give me that thing don't tell me what i can eat i've got free choice and you're like look I love eating donuts and crisps and chips dipped in mayonnaise more than anyone else. But I know that I have got access to also eating fresh fruit and vegetables when I want, and I've got the skills to do it. We're talking about people who are, they don't have a choice. The idea that they've got a choice is, is also another massive piece of propaganda. The, there are people who, you know, single mothers who've got two jobs, they've got no time to cook. They might have no kitchen. Or they might just have a microwave because a lot of council houses have a tiny kitchen with a microwave in and then a massive telly room. So there are so many people in this country. Um, and George Monbiot said about 13 or 14% of people in this country don't even have access to kitchens. So they do not have a choice to eat better. They literally, there's no way they can. 
and they're surrounded by food deserts, which means they've got no fresh fruit and vegetables on sale near them. They've just got chicken shops. Um, it is cheap at the point of buy, um, but not cheap further down the line. So this idea that we've got a choice, not to mention the advertising. I mean, advertising junk food to kids as well, and the hundreds and the hundreds of millions spent on making us want those really unhealthy, high profit numbers that are kind of high in the saturated fats and sweet. I mean, I'm, I think it's very clever, the marketing, that people who talk about public health are kind of made out as these killjoys of like, oh, you just, you don't want, you don't want to take away good food from us and we want to eat lovely. I mean, we all want to eat delicious things, right? We all want to eat delicious things. But at what point do delicious have to not mean nutritious as well? And even nutritious sounds a bit boring, doesn't it? It sounds a bit like, oh, you've taken the fun out of it. But, you know, covering dal and ghee, like spice with, or, or oil, with, you know, full of like the mustard seeds and the curry leaves and, you know, and covering it in that oil and then dumping your freshly cooked naan bread in it and, you know, scooping it up and, you know, fat. How delicious is fat? I'm always throwing fat all over my food. Who said your <laughs> food has to taste bad? Look, that's madness. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's it's a really interesting point, and I'm glad you you brought up the the p word propaganda because I think it is pervasive in that anyone who wants to speak out against ultra processed foods, cheap foods, is seen as elitist. Um, and you definitely see it on social media where you have people who kind of feel like they need to police the internet somewhat. Um, I was chatting to Professor Tim Spector about this actually on the on the pod a couple of weeks ago. And he, he was sort of like uh, grumbling about the same thing, really. It's like, you know, we know through doing the studies, through reading the research, that ultra high, ultra processed food is not satiating. It actually makes you eat more. The calories that you're consuming are, that they have no nutritional value whatsoever. But there is this pervasive belief that the, food industry is doing a service by making palatable portable very cheap food accessible to as, as many people as possible um and it's it's just not the case and i and i think being antagonistic to that idea unfortunately brings a, a bit of shade to to you um and so i'm glad you know we're having this pretty open conversation about not only how we can introduce better uh, nutrition into into the food system but also how you can do it on a budget and save food so the fact that you know putting a trained chef in schools can actually lead to a saving that you put back into salaries that makes a happier environment and a more sort of cohesive environment i think is a wonderful idea and something that we should be adopting all all over yeah and as you say we should be adopting it in in hospitals where People stay mm. for longer in hospital because they're so malnourished while they're there. They actually get sicker. Or in prisons. Like, at what point did we think it was a sensible idea to feed a set of people that might be, you know, some people might think, well, they've broken the law, they're on the fringe of society. Why should we feed them good food? But unless you're feeding them food that makes them feel good, I mean, there's that high prevalence of mental health in people in prison. Um, you know, really poor mental health. You know, how do they get there in the first place? If we look at prison offenders and like they're bad, just lock them up, throw away the key. What about trying to rehabilitate people? What about trying to nourish them, feed them, get them physically active, get them mentally working and then thinking, oh, now I want to contribute to society. Now I feel I'm back on my feet. Maybe I'll even learn a skill in prison. That would be good, wouldn't it? So that when I get out, 
I'm actually then contributing to society, paying taxes, you know, happy in my environment, looking after my family again. You know, it's it just it's nuts um, the way we have it, this pervasive idea that good food is a luxury. Like, how did how did that get marketed? It, it's really the idea that food keeps us alive. How is that a luxury? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you bring up the. Um uh the, the issue around prison food as well because I, I was lucky enough to present at the public sector catering conference earlier this year and so they had people from mod uh nhs chefs uh, and they're, they're wonderful sort of competitions to create sort of like public sector caterers that that we can shine a light on and uh, we had also some people from different prisons across the country as well and the opinions that people have about prison food and whether we should be investing anything at all into prison food, super divisive. I, I'm definitely of the opinion that we should be trying to nourish uh, people in their most vulnerable state. And that includes prisoners, because many of them, as you just mentioned, you know, you just scratch away the surface and you realize that you're putting, not for everyone, obviously, there, there are certainly people who are just bad, but actually I would argue that's the minority you scratch away at the surface and you realize you put anyone in that environment from childhood, um, the, the, the environments in, in which they, they grew up in, the people they were surrounded with, it's almost inevitable. And, and maybe like, you know, I've read a bit too much Gabal Mate and like, did a bit, you know, I, I've read a lot of sort of opinions from, from different, from different authors, uh, but I'm certainly of the opinion that everyone deserves nutritious food, regardless of your situation, and particularly if you're in your most vulnerable, which is hospitals, prisons, uh, and, um, and 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 schools. So, yeah, I, I just want to put it out there because I, I know that some people definitely have some opinions on, on prison food, but um, that that's that's where my mindset is. But I think you're brilliant the way you say that. You know, you scratch around, under the surface of every story of everyone who's in prison, and as you say, there are some people in there who genuinely evil and you know it's better for society to have them there but then so many will be you know you'll find out that you know they came from a broken home you know they came from had single parents or no parents um there was no youth club near them there was no kind of parental figure there was nowhere to screw them up maybe they got you know kicked out of school another really criminal kind of policy where you know if your kid's not doing well just get rid of them uh, they were picked up by a gang that became their family they supported them they made them feel like they belonged for the first time and then suddenly they're in a gang you know and then they get locked up so yeah i think we don't want to just forget these people we're going to bring them back in society if we can because apart from anything else that's got to be better for the economy right get those people back working um contributing and and being part of society Yeah, so I'm really interested in the return on investment because I, w w uh, just to give some insight into when I did my little pop-up tour over the last couple of months in, in hospitals, we did like a little traveling circus of, of me and uh, a couple of chefs and they went into different locations. We're at Bradford, uh, Royal Surrey, uh, Northwood Park, Barnet and Addenbrooke's. And A, we saw the different environments for the hospital canteens, vastly different, different skill set of the workers, but also different facilities. Some didn't even have like proper ovens or anything. Um, and the energy that having a like professionally trained chef brought to that little 
team was amazing. I, one of the the best sort of um, compliments I got wasn't a compliment to me. It was it was just one of the the servers said, "I'm really proud to be serving this food," um, and you know the, the color, the energy, the sort of response of the staff. That was it was all great. And so I think this whole concept of putting a professional, a chef, a leader into an environment where they can um, uh, excite the team and actually create delicious, cheaper food um, is something that needs to be scaled. And so I'm I'm just interested in in the return on investment for putting chefs in in different environments and and if you have any insights into that. Well, um, well, I really want to talk about um, this thing that you just mentioned um, that I did for Nesta because this Mm. is really related to this. Um, So... Someone asked me, you know, there this crazy thing like Minister for the Future, if there's one thing you wanted to do uh, to change things, what would it be? And the whole chefs and school journey for me, which started off just as a passion project, you know, I cook on Instagram, I still run restaurants, I write recipes in the garden. That's kind of ostensibly what I do for a living. But then this has really taken over so much because I've seen the power of the change. So what you just said there, I think is really key to that the sense of pride in those people in the kitchen was huge. So instead of having legions of workers and, you know, the catering industries, they, you know, it's a massive, it's the second biggest employer cooking in, in, in the country. It contributes billions of pounds to the economy. Um, we're talking about all cooking, like restaurants as well, but a lot of this is in the kind of public sector too. Um, and the idea, you know, all of us, when we get out of bed, our primary motivation is to feel useful, to feel inspired and feel like we're learning. I feel that, in, you know, when you look at, look at philosophy as a human being, you know, we know when we're motivated and happy and in flow, that wonderful state of flow, which makes truly happy beings. This is a bit of fluffy stuff, right? But that's how it's when you're learning, you get that real flow state where you feel deep happiness is when you're learning and engaged in the thing you're doing which often is work. It can be pleasure too. It can be meditation or cycling or swimming. But when you're in that state of flow in your workplace, that is one of the definitions of true happiness. And I love that um, Japanese, um, is it Ayakurdi, Ayakada or whatever, where they're like, if you can, Ikigai exactly, where you can find a purpose in life that is needed, does something for your fellow human beings, and you can also get paid properly for it, feels that's the nub of it. So if we can create something where people are going to work feeling that joy and that deep suited happiness, then you've got a better society. That's the fluffy stuff. The rate, the return on investment is really interesting too. So in Denmark, um, they, t- about a decade ago, they discovered, or, or were just like, we're fed up. Our waterways are really polluted. Um, people can't swim in them. Uh, this is a bad, it's, it's bad for the environment. It's bad for public health. We've got to do something about this. And someone came up with a bright idea of like, if we could just stop so many um, nitrates going into the water, fertilizer off herbicides, fungicides going off into our waterways, that would have a massive impact. Let's use public procurement as a way of good. So now hospitals and um, prisons and stuff, 30% of their food procurement of the food they buy has to be organic. Let's just legislate for that. But let's make this work. So let's set um, a lot of parameters around the fact this can really happen and and work successfully. So we're going to really train those cooks in the prisons and the hospitals so that they actually know what they're doing, these organic ingredients they're suddenly getting in. We're going to have really clear labeling so that when they buy those ingredients, they know they're organic. And they set up another couple of parameters to help really make this project succeed. 
private enterprise saw it so skillfully kind of set out that they were like, we're getting bored this. This looks like good. Like this is like win, win, win. So we're jumping board. And the whole project became so successful that today in Copenhagen, I think it's about 60% of public pure food is organic across the country. It's up to 90%, 60% across the country. But in Copenhagen, it's up to 90% because the whole project was done so successfully. So now we're going to talk about return on investment. So just the savings to the public health system, their version of the NHS, they reckon we're not even thinking about better soils, more biodiversity, happier farmers and cleaner waterways, because even the cleaner waterways will save the government a couple of billion because it costs a lot right, to clean up your waterways and the kind of ensuing fallout from polluted rivers. So just across the National Health Service, for every euro they spent in setting this project up, they're saving, so one off cost of every euro, they're saving annually 35 euros just on the public health service. Because the people now, the, you know, the citizens are being fed better. They're getting a bigger range of vegetables in their diet. They're having more fiber, which no one talks about enough. You know, how much fiber is an ultra processed food? Almost none. It's just kind of, con, you know, contorted processed stuff that managed to stick together and last on a shelf for five months or a year or whatever. So no one's getting enough fiber, which is one of the key, you know, attributes of gut health is, do we, are we eating enough fiber? That's feeding all those amazing microorganisms. So suddenly they've got a nation of much healthier people and, and we know what the NHS is doing here. I mean, all we ever do is turn on the radio and hear how diabolical the state is of the play. They reckon by 2050, we're going to be spending more money on diet related disease in the NHS than all of the cancers combined. And that's just nuts. So if we can ke- create this system where we know we're going to save money, there might be a tiny bit of upfront cost. But we can probably actually even negotiate that because contrary to what the massive food people will say to you, you can save money on that food cost. And in fact, what we want to do is we want to talk to the likes of Compass and all these big contract caterers and say, come on, you know, you want to hit your, your carbon agenda. You want to get to net zero. Or, or, so let's help you get there, too, because you've got kids. You know what the state of play is. You know, the NHS is crumbling. And if your mother gets a call out, like has a fall. She wants to get on an ambulance and get school. So you know that deep down, you want to do the good too. So even if you're head of Compass or working Compass, you want to do the right thing. So let's all do the right thing. Get this thing in motion. So I wrote this piece and I was like, come on, let's just do it. Let's make sure that, I think in the piece I wrote for Nesta and Prospect Magazine, I was saying, let's make 50% of public procured foods in all prisons, hospitals, social care is a big one. Let's make them regenerative. Because regenerate regenerative farming now is is all it can it's you know should be organic, but it's about re re rewilding that soil. In fact, we want to rewild the plate too. There's an amazing girl who works with John Professor John Crawford, um, India. Um, I wish I could remember her surname. He talks about rewilding our plates, but by rewilding our plates, we're rewilding our gut biome. We're rewilding nature. It's a win-win-win. We're massive savings in the NHS happier, healthier nation, all thriving. I I like to, you know, like healthy food gets such a bad rap. But I like to think, imagine if we're all animals, right? We know we're animals. I mean, we think too much, we're basically animals. I like to think of us like like tigers in the jungle. Do you want to be like a fat kind of overweight tiger who always feels tired? It's basically they're eating too many like hamburgers and Jaffa cakes. And so they can't like 
They can't even leap to catch their prey because they're basically just too heavy. Or do you want to be the type of tiger who's like running around, playing with your kids, leaping from tree to tree and across the branches and catching things and, and feeling fit and active and well? So I think, you know, healthy food is not bad. Feeling good is feeling good. Like if you eat well and eat good food, so boring to have so much passion about one thing, isn't it? I feel like I go on and on about the same things, but it's so exciting. How possible this all is. You're speaking to the right audience, to be honest. So, you know, the, the Doctor's Kitchen listeners and, and community members are like really passionate about this subject, as am I, as are you. And, you know, we can talk to the cows come home about this because it, it, it is exciting. I think it's the most exciting place to be. Uh, regardless of what industry you're in, whether it's medicine, whether it's uh, ESG, whether it's uh, farming, you know, I, I think nutrition and food and what we put on our plates has just such a massive impact. Um, so, no, I, 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 I mean, t- talk away. Do, do, I'll definitely look up rewilding our plate. I love that sort of uh, the analogy and, and the, the concept of rewilding. I, I wonder if people haven't listened to some of my podcasts with them. Um, Abby Rose, who, t- who talked about regenerative farming and her biodynamic farm in, in Chile. Um, what's sort of like the too long didn't read uh, of regenerative farming compared to, uh, you know, organic or, or conventional? What, what, what is regenerative farming to you? How, how do you sort of explain that to, to people who haven't come across the concept before? So essentially what you're doing is you're being really mindful that underneath our feet, there's this incredible thing called soil. and in a teaspoon of soil, there are more microorganisms than there are people on this planet. There is so much teeming life in soil. And there are amoebas and nematodes and protozoi and fungi and bacteria. And they are having sex with each other and they're eating each other. And they've got carnal lust and they're all working together to create this process, which essentially is photosynthesis. So they're taking all the kind of energy from the sun and they are sucking out all the carbon from the atmosphere and they're chomping out oxygen as their byproduct. And in the process, they're creating food, which is the plant life, which is, and that is basically the fundamentals of regenerative farming is understanding the interplays between all these incredible microorganisms who are all doing all this crazy stuff underneath our feet, which we're only just, only just beginning to get to the tip of knowledge about. I mean, penicillin, is a fungi that came from the from underneath our feet. You know, they are building buildings out of fungi from underneath our feet now. They are doing so much. There are fungi that eat nuclear waste. There are fungi that can eat all sorts of waste and, and churn out edible mushrooms on, in the process. So we are just on this tip of incredible knowledge about the fungi. And regenerative farming essentially takes that knowledge and nurtures that process. And the more you nurture it, you can think of really healthy soil as being a giant sponge. And that giant sponge has air pockets where it can suck in the carbon and process all the time, can also suck in water. So when we have intensive flooding, it has much greater capacity because healthy soil basically becomes a bigger and bigger sponge, the healthier the soil is. And so really healthy soil is this giant sponge. And so when it rains a lot, it can keep that water and retain it. And then when you've got drought, it's already got all that water in it. So it's got that water that root systems can access. If you've got really unhealthy soil, you've got no sponge, the water kind of runs off. There's a kind of fairly um, non-permeable film on top of the soil. And you can see that with flooding, um, that the, just the water runs off and the topsoil runs off. You can see in, in bad flooding, 
the mud that goes off into the rivers. And that is all the essential topsoil that we use to grow our food in. So regenerative farming basically harnesses all this knowledge we're getting now to nurture that process and have really healthy soils so that all these microorganisms can do their stuff, which is essentially sucking out the carbon, chewing out, chomping out the oxygen, but in the process creating plants that are high in phytochemicals, high in micronutrients that feed us all the good stuff that you know a lot of foods these days don't really contain. So it is, you know, for me, regenerative farming is putting away the herbicides and the pesticides and the fungicides because healthy soils and healthy plant systems, we're also talking about microdiversity of plant systems because there's nowhere in nature that you just have one crop growing in the field. You can't see that in nature. Everywhere in nature there's diversity. So even all those microorganisms I was talking about, the bacteria, the fungi, the nematodes, there's a diversity of them like in our gut, that is a healthy system. If you take away that diversity, you're making a very, uh, what's the word, uh, weak system, really prone to attack. And that's where you start getting big fungicides um, and you know massive weeds because they are sprouting up in a, in a system you created that's di- devoid of diversity. So in all our farming now, conventional farming, we just grow monocrops. And the only way we can grow them because they've got no complex systems, they've got bad soil, is we just nuke them more and more with these herbicides, pesticides. I mean, the herbicides, glyphosate, but lots of people making new generation herbicides that are no longer called glyphosate because they're beginning to get a bad name. But they're all linked to you know, autoimmune diseases, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's. I mean, why do we think there's this crazy rise in Alzheimer's? It's just not magic. You know, it doesn't just suddenly happen that we all got older and we all started getting Alzheimer's. There are, there are reasons. You know, if you nuke the, the plants that we later eat with chemicals that were invented in the Second World War to kill people then and that kill, you know, the plants and the microorganisms, then obviously they're going to be bad for us. So regenerative farming is about basically throwing away those chemicals, which are oil rich, oil hungry anyway. And the farmers, like farmers are having to use more and more of these to get the same crop yields. And they cost a lot of money. Actually, if you throw away those chemicals and start growing these amazing practices of regenerative, the farmers are actually making more money because half of their costs get thrown away. They're no longer dependent on this oil-rich system of farming full of the chemicals and the nitrates. Um, and then they're growing really healthy food. Um, and so that bit I was talking about that I wrote for Prospect was like, let's just make a movement let's make it completely unavoidable that we do this thing that let's say by 2030 or even let's make it earlier than that that at least 30 percent of our public procured food which we spent two billion pounds on a year is regenerative because just think about the impact that would have we could create you know much better food at no no increase in food cost we would save vast amounts of money on NHS we'd start being able to swim in our rivers and seas again because they'd suddenly be cleaner um, and it would be an absolute win for the environment. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, it's great. You can do it in hospitals. I can do it in schools. Get <laughs> someone on our prison to do it. And make yeah. this happen. Yeah, Woo! absolutely. Come the revolution. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I, I think that's a really good explanation of regenerative farming. I think there's so many parallels between how we forgot about the importance of our digestive system and our and our gut microbial population that we collectively called the microbiota or the genetic diversity being the microbiome. Um, and, and it's also interesting 
to note that we sort of forgot about it, even though it's very marked in our history. So if you look at traditional Chinese medicine, you look at Ayurvedic medicine, even Mayan medicine, I'm sure, although I haven't looked into it, um, they all talk about the gut as the root uh, of all health and the root of all disease, right? Like my, my mom and dad have always known about this and, you know, uh, making sure that you're looking after your your tummy with lots of delicious, diverse ingredients. It's simple, it's cheap. Um, and the same way, I think our understanding of our soil system is having a, a bit of a revolution as well. More people are understanding the importance of not just adding uh, nitrogen phosphate uh, uh, and uh, uh, potassium fertilizers, but actually nurturing the soil's ability to look after itself and provide nutrient-rich um, well, nutrients to our, our crops that become um, uh, better for us and better for the planet. And this idea of investing in soils to uh, mellow climate uh, change as well is, 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 again, something that I think a lot more people need to, to understand um, and invest in time. But it, is, it does require some, some lateral thinking uh, and, and forward thinking by people in, in, in government because you're not going to see the return on investment immediately. It's going to be further down the line. And because we, we live in this sort of like very short cycle political system, no one's really willing to stick their neck out and, and, and invest in this as, as we're seeing right now with, um, with offshore and onshore wind arguments and stuff. What I find really interesting too is that we think, you know, intuitively you feed a, uh, a plant nitrate, you give them the good stuff and then they grow, right? But actually they've shown that if you don't feed them the nitrate, then the plant has to do the work itself. It has to create those partnerships with the fungal networks and all those bacteria then kick into their system. And the process by which the plant has to do the work itself and find those nitrates itself already existing in the natural food web or the wood, then that is what creates those healthy, diverse plant systems. That's what makes the plant strong and healthy and actually nutritious. If you just give them it straight away, it's a bit like that, I guess, you know, it's like, you know, they're metaphors in daily life, aren't they? If you actually do the work, you get the benefit. If it's just pandered to you on the plate, you don't probably learn as much. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's it's almost like multivitamins, I, I think, with, with humans. Like, yes, I could just take a, a crushed vitamin tablet and that'll give me all my calcium and potassium needs and all the rest of it. But am I going to be healthy? No, I'm not. I'm going to survive, but I won't be thriving for sure. I'll just be, you know, a, a withered... Uh, sort of shell of a human if I was just relying on that and there's so much intelligence in the food that we consume um, that we don't really appreciate and I think the intelligence of our soils is something that is sort of you know completely lost I mean my my family we come from Punjab obviously you're aware of the the farmer protests from from last year and um, that sort of reliance on uh, petrochemicals uh, in, in the agricultural industry and stuff and it, um, it, it leaves a bit of a bad taste in my mouth because I, I see the sort of struggles of farmers and farmers just aren't championed enough in the same way chefs aren't, aren't championed enough, I think. Um, and I think we need to really adjust our appreciation for, for people who are foundations for, for life on earth. And they have such an, a critical role in this new era of diet-related illness and climate change. Um, th these guys should really be, be, be put on pedestals. But what I find is exciting, again, is you, you talk about policy change and the investment as being a kind of barrier to making this stuff happen. But what I find really exciting is that 
uh, if you follow the money, the money's wise, right? And investment is wise. So even, so Alison Rose is a great hero of mine. She is the chair of NatWest. And she realized um, recently that uh, 3% of her customers created 20% of her carbon emissions. So as a company trying to get to net zero, she knew that this tiny percentage of her clients were creating massive amount of her emissions. They were farmers. So she started really drilling down into that because, you know, conventional farming is really, you know, emits so much carbon and is so reliant on this chemical hungry way of farming. So she started really exploring to this. And, and actually, if you look at where the smart money is going, investments now, look at farms and how are you farming? Because if you're farming in a way where you know your soil runoff is increasing, you have to keep putting on these nitrates where the cost of them is going up all the time. You're not building a resilient business. You're not building a, a business that I really think I should be investing in because I can see how it's going to be falling down. Your costs are rising, your yields are falling, and meanwhile, your soil is kind of being degraded all the time. Let's look now at Regen to a system where you're investing in the soil. We know that you're in a drought system. You've got better soils. You've got more water retention. We know when it floods, you're actually not losing that water. All the topsoil is actually sucking all that water in. So you're not getting that same runoff. Your, your crops are protected. That's the type of business model I want to invest in. So I think although government's probably behind a bit behind and slow to catch up on, business isn't. Business is really seeing like, oh, so you're using a diversity of wheat crops now and they've all got deeper root systems. So in a drought, this conventional wheat that we've grown just for yield, they've got really short roots. So they will be the first ones to go. But these ancient varieties of wheat got these really deep root systems which can access all that deep down water. That is more resilient. That's the business that I'm going to put my money in because I'm a smart businessman. And I think that's what's really interesting now is people are looking deeper into these things. And, and that's where the money will be going. I mean, I love Oaxaca, but I don't think we're going to get a, <laughs> we're not going to get a chance to talk about Oaxaca and your story today. But I, I, I want to dive into to Denmark a bit because I think it's an incredible uh, example of what can be done. Um, so w- what, what was the time period uh, that they, they made these changes in um, in procurement of organic uh, pr- produce for, for the public sector, because that that seems like that that's huge, and and it's an amazing example of of the fact that it can be done at a at a at, at a country level. Yeah, so I think, and I I really I actually I need to I, now that my piece has come out, I can really start shouting about it and um and and banging the drum. I've got to Steve Delpin, but I I I feel it was about um. You know, it was it was kind of set up about ten to fifteen years ago, um, and but the the impact has been fairly quick. You know, the the impact on the waterways was very quick because you know you stop putting chemicals in the land. That's quite a quick turnaround for the rivers. Start regenerating the soil. Um, what I think is interesting about this is it was just organic food. If you put it to regenerative, then you're having a much more positive impact because you're not just having a neutral thing of no chemicals you're having a positive thing of actually nourishing the soil at the same time um and then the health impact um is probably a bit slower but but not that much behind because if you think about having someone in hospital if you start feeding them better food pretty quickly they're going to start feeling better and getting better like you know anyone who's sick and you feed them some lovely chicken soup or you know vegetable broth or whatever it is that that improvement's quite quick so 
actually, it's a pretty fast turnaround, the system. And we can see that in chefs and schools. You know, we go into a school and within a term, the kids are saying to us, it's amazing. I don't fall asleep anymore after school. I feel well. I feel healthy. I can concentrate in class. You know, so these turnarounds actually are pretty fast. Um, so which, which is very positive as well. Um, and it's, it's lovely you mentioned Oaxaca because I feel like um, at Oaxaca, which we set up 15 years ago, we always wanted to have um, a menu that was really high in vegetables. So half our menu is vegetarian. And it was always something we wanted to do, not, um, not just because we love ve- vegetables, but because we thought it was great to give people a choice of having slightly more affordable food, but because we always want to put better meat on our, on our menu. So all of our meat at the moment is free range and our beef is grass fed. And we wanted to invest in better quality meat, but then we want to have an option for people if they didn't think they could afford that, you know, beautiful free range pork grilled taco, then they could have the delicious kind of mushroom, ancho mushroom taco with crispy beetroot and jalapeno aioli or something, you know, and have an option. So, um, so that I think has governed a lot of this thinking. And I think that, I think that is a really good model because we know we've got to eat less meat to be climate friendly, but that doesn't have to be bad. You know, just get delicious vegetables on your plate and that rainbow of them, diversity. And it's a delicious journey as, you know, as you, as all your followers know, vegetables can be so delicious and for a cook. I love the creativity of cooking vegetables. It's so fun looking at a piece of broccoli or courgette or beetroot, knowing there are so many ways you can cook that thing. It's like, am I, what am I going to do with it today? Am I going to shred that beetroot and turn it into a fritter? Am I going to make a soup? Am I going to like deep fry it into a crisp? You know, it's just like, where am I going to take this? You know, steak, great, pan fry it. You know, how creative is that? I can do a different sauce. So I think it's it's really fun cooking with vegetables. Yeah, no, I think uh, from 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 a chef's point of view and a recipe creator's point of view, it's a it's an all, awesome challenge. I, I did something recently um, with the BBC trying to create some budget friendly meals uh, using what we tend to find in people's pantries, um, and boy, is it hard! It's it, it is really hard to like really extract flavor, and, and like you know, I want to make sure that I'm putting in a certain number of vegetables. We're prepping them in a certain way. I wasn't allowed to use the oven, like all these different things. And it's, it's challenging, but it, but it really does force you to, to, to get creative, um, which I think is awesome on the, on the note of, um, sorry, we're jumping around a bit, but on the note of, uh, chefs in schools. So you want to try and get to 1300 schools. When, when's that target? When sort of like the... four years. So, four year, four wow. Years. Okay. <laughs> so we've been in existence for four years and we've done 80. But we have we've got nailed our we've nailed our model now. So so this is a fun bit now, right? We want maximum. We want to get in as many schools as possible. But more excitingly, we've got our training program. We've got it all set up. So we've got the capacity we feel to be in half of the schools in 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 the UK in the next let's say six to eight years, eight to ten years, because we've got a ready to go training program that's been tested that we can hand over to anyone who's interested. So maybe we can even give that to a hospital or a prison. You know, you could think bigger than this because it's basically ready to go. So we're on a kind of bit of a fun raising mission, but we're also just on this, we just want to get the word out as much as possible. I mean, our motto is better as possible because it is possible. It's completely possible. Um, so again, using that propaganda word, better is so possible yeah. and affordable. How many schools are, ballpark figure, how many schools are there in, in the UK? 
26,000. 26,000. Okay. So you're going to get into like five, around 5% or so. Uh, that's, in, that's, in us. The... that's us with our people. Yeah. But then our training yeah. program could get into another 13,000, we reckon, in the next. Yeah, yeah, that that's epic. So you're, you're literally like at that blitz scale, uh, to use sort of a Silicon Valley term um, in, in tech, uh, that sort of like period, which is super exciting. I mean, it's super nerve-wracking, but super, it's super exciting. And if you could nail that trainee program, I don't see why, if you've shown in one public sector the ability to change, you, you couldn't do it in, like in parallel in others. Because I've seen firsthand how the impact of just having a chef in the in the hostel environment really invigorated everyone and, and create the excitement and create delicious food. Um, so that that would be amazing, absolutely, absolutely incredible. What I find really exciting about it too is you can work with the big public sector caterers, um, and you can help train their cooks, and and you can help give them recipes. And because I think everyone wants to do better now, everyone knows. You know, the state of play, you look out at the floods and the extreme heat and all around the world, we're seeing these kind of weather patterns. Everyone wants to make a difference now and put their part in. So, you know, we want to engage with everyone because I talked to a whole um, lot of public sector caterers the other day. And, and as you say, that everyone wants to do this. They're, they're everyone's, it's like we're just pushing a door that's already a bit open. Everyone knows they've got to make changes. And so if you can make it easy and fun and exciting in a way, so you're, you're part of this really inspiring movement. Mm. And I think that's the way to go. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, someone who's coming at this from not just a charitable perspective and an activist perspective, but a business perspective such as yourself, I think is critical because at the end of the day, organizations, including the NHS, are looking at the bottom line with all this stuff. And it's the, you know, in the UK, it's a bit of an ugly thing to talk about business but I, I it's absolutely necessary and the commercial element definitely needs to be there and ju- just I, I don't want to like, I, I want to play devil's advocate with the Denmark example because I know I get a lot of pushback for um you know thinking about uh ways in which to improve the health system slash that diet related uh um uh, disease bill every year you know we, we spend billions on type 2 diabetes and many other preventable conditions and my sort of running theory is not theory it's it's the reality is that nutrition has an impact on every disease state you know whether it's not just cardiovascular disease and, and obesity it's mental well-being it's women's health it, you know cancer everything which is Alzheimer's why we talk about it so saying. much. Alzheimer's, huge, huge, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. It all comes down to the gut and and you know what you're feeding your, your microbiota. So yeah, it, it's a it's a massive issue. With with Denmark, I imagine you, the pushback you're going to get is well, Denmark's very different. They have a completely different uh, taxation system. They pay way more in. Uh, this is just top of the head from from. from like background knowledge, I, I I think they pay a lot more in in tax generally at a population level. Um, maybe they have pre-existing farms that are organic, or you know, and uh, and they they deal with less people in their public sectors. And I'm sure the population size is a lot smaller. What what do you say? What are sort of like your your throwbacks to those points that are inevitably gonna gonna come up? So so one, we're already doing it. We're already doing it through chefs and schools. Effectively, what we're doing, you know, we use world farm flour. We get better quality meat from good providers. We we know that our vegetables come from good good growers. So we're already doing it. 
And we've proved that we can still do that and save money. So that's one thing. Two, definitely they've got a different population, but we've got more workers. So we've got more people to feed, but then we've got more workers to feed them. So, and also we've got, we've got lots of people who are looking for work. So let's create jobs that are inspiring, well-paid, and, and get people motivation to get out of bed in the morning because we can know we can create those jobs because we've seen how even the cool 30-year-old who trained at Michel Star Kitchen and DJs at Freeze Art Fair in his like weekends, he likes cooking these scenarios because he's like motivated, he's a hero. It's an inspiring job. And let's, let's, I mean, what better thing than to create inspiring jobs that people want to work in in society? So, so that's another thing. And then taxation. I mean, again, we're already doing it. Like we were already saving money in these schools. I think there is always some upfront cost in making a change. And that's the most thorny thing is like, who's going to do that investment? But when you can see the savings so quickly, and I'm going to really drill down into the detail now, give me some homework to do to go and really examine that Denmark model inside out. So next time I'm on a podcast, I'm going to be throwing back these answers straight away. But if you can get such quick change, um, then there are ways to finance these things, I really believe. And even if you just start small projects, um, I was talking to someone in Jersey just before I came on board and he was really interested in doing like a microcosm of it in Jersey, which is kind of a closed system. And then really learn how public health is. But I feel like because we're already doing it in chefs and schools and because projects like this are sparking up in hospitals around the country, you know, there are examples of some hospitals doing better. I feel like, I feel that that's not really a bar. I think we've kind of proven that it's not really a bar. Um, that does need to be, I feel like there needs to be a crossbench um, agreement. It's the right thing to do, but but it feels like it's a really low investment and you can get private enterprise, you know, you can get banks involved. You know, I talked about NatWest wanting to do the right thing. They want that, they, they've got a real motivation to get those two or 3% of customers doing much better for their like emissions for that for the NatWest emissions so it's in their interest to get those farmers on the right journey so we're providing route to market for the farmers because the farmers also need to know if they're creating these food products that are better for everyone they need to know they've got market for them so we're also creating a market to pull the farmers on this better journey in the total absence of legislation at the moment so that's also a really good thing you know you're pulling everyone in the same direction yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, we definitely need to talk uh, <laughs> more about this. I, I'm super, super excited for you, and uh, I, I know that if there's anyone that's going to make massive change, as you've already demonstrated through chefs in schools and 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 the, the rest of your team as well, um, you could definitely do it in, in this environment too. I, I got to tell you a really funny story. So you know when you were on Saturday Kitchen, I can't remember I already told you this, but uh, uh, and you were you were doing a, a recipe from your meat free, meat free Mexican. That's the name of the cookbook, isn't it? Like yeah, out yeah, this I year. love. Yeah, you made this. Yeah. Del- it, it was incredible. This this meal you made, uh, you made the the sort of sauce, uh, the salsa from scratch. Uh, I think it was called salsa negra, and uh, and uh, me and my wife, we were like, oh, we're definitely going to make this at home, but we didn't have any of your ingredients, so we we made it and we tried it and we shared it with one of our friends called Liz. It's like Liz, you got to try this recipe. We made it a bit different, but you got to you got to try it. We sent her a voice note and we said, uh, instead of red wine vinegar, we used the sherry vinegar. We used we used instead of like the coriander, we had to use parsley. We basically completely butchered your recipe. And she was like, you haven't made that recipe. You've literally just made something completely. 
completely different. So it might taste great, but it's definitely not her recipe. It's inspired <laughs> but by. Is it? Yeah, it's exactly. That's by. what I said. Yeah. I mean, I think I get a bit too precious about these things. Like if a recipe <laughs> gets someone in the kitchen cooking, that's a win, right? I mean, all of my food writing, I feel like it's a win if someone has got in the kitchen and played with some ingredients and made something they like, you know, like the taste of afterwards. So yeah, that, that was so nice. Thank you. That, that that's my sense exactly. That yeah. salsa negra, I've got a jar of it in my in my cupboard here, and I put it on everything. I just love that salsa. So good. Can't so good. anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's a it's Thanks amazing. Yeah, and I and I I did make it the right way afterwards, but yeah, I do want to mention that because because as a recipe creator myself, I don't mind if people go completely sideways on the ingredients as long as they enjoyed it, they got in the kitchen, you know, it's inspired them to make something different. That's great, uh, but yeah, no, it was quite, it was quite funny how uh, we just completely did it, <laughs> and Liz thought it would be like the worst thing. Anyway, thank you, Tommy. You, you're an absolute star. I can't wait to chat to you again, and hope we can do it in person, and maybe even in the kitchen as well. That'd be oh awesome. yeah, let's cook. Love to cook. That'd be great. <laughs> cool. All right, lovely. Thanks so much for having me, Ruby. Thank you so much to Tommy for taking the time to jump on the podcast. I can't wait to cook with her one day. She is an awesome, awesome cook and writer and her book, Meat Free Mexican, is available in all good bookstores. All the links to everything that we chatted about today can be found on thedoxyskitchen.com and you can subscribe to the newsletter Eat, Listen, Read whilst you're there as well. I'll see you here next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 